This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, and happy Saturday. Coming up this week, we're going to have an installment in our Six Impossible Episodes series. And one of those impossible episodes that we mention throws back to Les Filles du Roi, which was the French effort to send eligible women to New France to correct a gender imbalance that had developed there. This is the oldest episode that's getting a shout out in the one that's coming out this week. Uh, or at least in terms of ones that have not already been reissued as Saturday Classics. So we thought it would be a good time to re-release it for listeners who weren't tuned into the show back in July of 2014 or could use a refresher on this bit of Canadian history. And please pardon my terrible pronunciation of French and sometimes also English in this episode. (laughs) Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today's topic is one that we have had many requests for, uh, especially since I mentioned when we were doing our um, Maurice Duplessis episodes that I wanted to do more Canadian history. And it's also one that's actually been on my list for quite a while, but I will not tell a lie. The thing that tipped the balance and kind of shifted this way up was a request from one of our youngest fans, Giselle, and her dad, Tony, who wrote us a very charming email. So bonjour, Gigi, et merci pour votre email. Uh... So this one is going to be about French-Canadian history and the colonization of New France. And while the building of a population in a new colony seems like a rather tricky endeavor, and it is... Uh, Francis King Louis XIV launched this scheme to do just that by shipping eligible ladies to New France in the 1600s so they could be brides and help build out this population. And how did this play out? You may or may not be surprised, but we will tell you all about it starting now. So after Europe became aware of these giant new continents, new to their minds, the Americas, uh, all of that land became contentiously battled over by all the various European power players. Spain and Portugal struggled with one another, primarily to wrest control of South America, while North America became a battleground for France and England. 
1608, Samuel de Champlain built the first domicile in Quebec, and consequently, he's sometimes referred to as the founder of New France. And this, of course, we're giving you very broad strokes. It's an oversimplified version of the story, but I mostly just wanted to establish the official founding of this settlement in the early 1600s. In those early years, the primary industry of New France was the fur trade. For the 55 years after de Champlain founded the settlement, it was run by commercial companies. The Canadian colony was primarily run by the Compagnie de Saint-Associer, which had promised to develop the North American French territory in exchange for rights to the land resources. And so what started primarily as a group of fur trappers and traders did indeed grow. And soon there were dock workers to uh, handle the incoming and outgoing shipments of fur. There were shopkeepers because they had to have some form of commerce that was supporting all of these people. Uh, and there were other workmen that came to New France. But really it was all about supporting the fur trade. Uh, and most of these were men that were on their own or who had left their families behind. So bringing women and children across the Atlantic to a new territory that was still covered in wilderness wasn't generally thought of as profitable by the men who were settling New France. Adding more mouths to feed, and these were mouths that wouldn't be able to contribute to the bottom line of the fur trade, really seemed like a losing proposition on paper. From the standpoint of a for-profit business looking to stay profitable, this was, of course, the wisest course of action to, you know, leave behind the women and children. But from the point of view of a country that was actually looking to colonize the land that it had claimed abroad, this became a huge problem. After 55 years of letting the Compagnie de Saint-Associer run the settlement effort, less than 1% of the land that France had claimed was actually occupied by Europeans. There were a mere 3,000 settlers in New France, and by comparison, British colonists numbered in the low six figures. There were more than 30 times as many of them as there were French colonists. So we've talked many times before about the lengthy and contentious history between Britain and France before. This vast gap in colonial development was kind of an embarrassment for France's part. And seeing how poorly the corporate settlers had managed things uh, in terms of population growth uh, and how the national pride had kind of been tanked by it, uh, King Louis XIV and the uh, other leaders in France made a move to rectify the situation. So New France was then placed under the rule of the monarchy. The Sun King was extremely keen on incentivizing colonization. He really, really wanted to have an established truly settled French presence in North America, and what he needed to make that goal was families. Yeah, I, we're, we're not going to diverge a bunch about Louis XIV and the Sun King's legacy, but he really, there was some pretty explosive colonization growth for France all over the world under his rule. So this was something he obviously was really invested in and cared about. And since the men who had been working the fur trade were largely single, as we mentioned, and there were few ladies in New France that were actually eligible for courtship, the king, along with the intendant of Quebec, Jean Talon, and the king's minister of finance, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, I have no idea if he's related to Stephen Colbert, so... Uh, can't help you there if that just popped to your mind. Uh, these three men concocted this plan to fill the gap in the sexes and even out the numbers. Uh, and so when this initiative that they came up with was started in 1663, there were six men for every woman in New France. And some most of those women were already uh, 
betrothed or married to men already, so they were not available women. From 1663 to 1673, a program was set into motion, and this sent marriageable ladies, who came to be known as les filles du roi, uh, or the king's daughters, to New France to become brides, mothers, and really the backbone of the settlement in many ways. Colbert uh, arranged the recruitment and bon voyages of the women from France, and Talon made sure that they were taken care of when they reached North America. As part of this deal, the French monarchy paid for the transit of these young women as a government expense, and the French West India Company handled their transport, and it was paid quite handsomely for each each woman that it transported. Yeah, they were basically considered very, very important cargo uh, because the king really, really wanted this whole thing to be successful. And while there had been women who traveled to Canada, certainly prior to this initiative, to make their way and hopefully find husbands, those women traveled on their own dime. It was not part of this sort of government-sanctioned effort. Uh, 1663 really marks the beginning of subsidized import of potential brides from France. The term Fia du Bois was first coined by Marguerite Bourgeois, who founded the Congregation of Notre Dame in Montreal in the 1650s. Her convent was normally the place where these young women would be welcomed once they arrived in New France, and the convent would care for them during the transition and was characterized as part of helping with France's very important colonization mission. Yeah, they took this responsibility very, very seriously. Uh, And before we talk about who these young women really were, uh, do you want to have a quick word from a sponsor? Sure thing. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. So getting back to the Fille du Roi, uh, the backgrounds of these ladies who set out for the Americas as part of this program were actually pretty diverse. Uh, there have been times where you'll see in sort of the quick and dirty history accounts of them, like, oh, they were all, you know, of low birth. Oh, no, they were all genteel ladies. But really, it, it really was pretty diverse. 
Some were from fairly well-off families, not a lot. Uh, and these women would travel with their bridal trousseau, sort of ready to start their own families with the men they would meet in the colony. Others had been recruited from country areas. Some were, in fact, orphans from the streets of Paris. And in the case of the very poor daughters of France, the state provided an assortment of useful household goods as their trousseau and also allotted each woman a small dowry. And these sort of state uh, provided trousseau normally included like a lady's valise or some sort of case for carrying a handkerchief, ribbons, a supply of needles and white thread, scissors, a hairbrush, stockings, gloves, knives, pins, and a bonnet. Basically like the things you would need to set up house uh, and sort of start your life in a new place. On average, though, the majority of the women who went from France to the Americas as part of this program were from modest homes. A handful were widows who were looking for a new life after losing their husbands. Many of them were from Paris or Rouen or the surrounding areas, but they could come from anywhere in France, and several of them were not even of French birth. And some of the benefit of recruiting women from charity hospitals, which uh, in this case we should mention that it's hospital isn't really what we think of that word meaning today. It's much more like an institution or kind of like a poorhouse in some cases or from very tough lives in the city streets, was really that these young women were accustomed to the idea of having to work. And that was a high value when introducing them into a newish settlement. Uh, at one point, however, Jean Talon wrote to Jean-Baptiste Colbert that it would really be best if they would send a few more farm girls and fewer city orphans, uh, because the latter group were sometimes too sickly to take on the challenges that awaited them in the Canadian wilderness. His letter states, it would be good to recommend strongly that those who are destined for this country are in no way disgraced in nature, that they are not repulsive on the exterior, and that they are healthy and strong for farm work, or at least have some ability for handiwork. Yeah, he wanted some, you know, hardy gals. Uh, and roughly two-thirds of the women making their way to New France married to men who were living in the more rural areas of the colony rather than the urban base. So there really was some legitimate concern that women unsuited to country life were really going to have a rough time of it. And since the goal of this entire program was to bolster the population and expand the settlement, it made sense to everyone involved to try to stack the odds in favor of making genuinely suitable matches and, you know, landing women in positions that they were going to be comfortable in, that they could handle, that they would be able to, you know, help provide for their family and the community. To that end, there was also a handful of women we mentioned earlier of slightly higher social standing. These women were in the mix with the intent that they would be potential brides for military officers and citizens of high estate within the settlement's social structure. So reading through these details, it starts to feel like something of a hybrid between super efficient matchmaking and livestock wrangling. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's one of those things where it's easy to get real bristly and be like, wait, they were doing what? Like, it's kind of like mail order briding on a really huge scale. Uh, and while the exact number of women that, that were part of this whole initiative is a little tricky to pin down, some of the women that were involved are debated by historians as to whether they were actually part of the King's Daughters Initiative or if they just kind of made their way on their own and tried to kind of blend in with the King's Daughters uh, program. Others are kind of problematic to match the numbers up because the, the records are either incomplete or they're muddled or some part of the record has been damaged. But it is estimated that 770 women were sent to New France over the course of a decade as the King's Daughters. 
And this made up about 8% of the total immigrants to New France during that period. And that sounds like a very low number because it's a single digit. But if that sounds scant to you, it's worth noting that it also made up about 50% of all the women that were going to New France during these years. Most of the people that were headed to New France from France were, in fact, men who wanted to get in on the fur trade and try to make their fortune. Only one in 10 of these women had a relation, even a very distant relation, anywhere else in the colony when they traveled from France. This is in huge contrast to the rest of the women who made the same journey before 1700. For women who were not one of the king's daughters, uh, roughly two-thirds of them had at least one relation in New France. And most of them had more than one relation. You know, they were either going to family that they knew or... Uh, you know, they had multiple cousins there or something to that effect. And in terms of the age breakdown, about 14% of these women were between the ages of 14 and 18. 44% were between the ages of 19 and 24. 25% were between the ages of 25 to 29. 12% were 30 to 34. 3% were 35 to 39. And a little under 2% were older than 40. Uh, or 40 or older. And as you track the data upward from the youngest to oldest, the percentage of widows in each group, unsurprisingly, also goes up. There have been some accounts through the years that most of the women in the program were of less than pristine virtue. And there's been an equal degree of historical testimony that this was not the case at all. Some accounts indicate that before any woman was allowed to get on a ship bound for New France, a friend or relative had to vouch for their virtuous and good nature beforehand. Ill behavior or debauchery on the way could result in a woman being shipped directly back to France with her uh, opportunity to start a new life in the colony completely voided. Uh, And before we get on to sort of how these matches were made on a more nuts and bolts sort of level uh, and sort of how incentivized family making was. Uh, Do you want to do another quick word from a sponsor? Let's do. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, Uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready 
curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. As you might imagine, in a colony that consisted almost entirely of men, brides shipped from the homeland were quite an exciting prospect. And most of the women that came from France to North America were married in pretty short order after arriving in New France. To further incentivize this whole idea of making a population stronghold, the French government also offered cash grants to men who were married, and even larger sums to men who had children with their new wives. Allowances were made and tables were drawn up to accommodate families as large as 12, and there were corresponding payment levels for all sizes. Families had a very clear cash value. Yeah, it gives the term family values a whole different meaning if you think about it in this way. Uh, Men who opted not to take a wife, however, actually found themselves penalized. Uh, Their fur trading efforts would meet up with blocks and their privileges were regulated to the point of loss. Like they would not be legally allowed to trade or their, you know, trade uh, allowances were suspended after a very, you know, short amount. Uh, but men did not, I feel compelled to point out, need to marry any of the filles du roi to benefit from these incentive programs. They could also marry natives of North America, peoples already living there, people that came from other places, just as long as they were in the French colony, marrying and making families, they could still get benefit payments as long as they were kind of helping populate the French colony. So to modern ears, this may seem like a pretty weird scheme that was destined for failure. But it turned out that all of this incentivized family building actually worked exactly as the king had hoped. All but about 4% of the Fils du Bois were married in New France. Yeah, this was a huge success, which I... I I will admit that through my modern lens, and I try, you know, to put that stuff aside, but there's this part of me that's always like, no way would this work. No. Oh, yeah, it worked really well, actually. Yeah, I, on the um, other hand, I'm like, I'd sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> if I have a choice between, you know, being destitute uh, or traveling an ocean and having a new adventure, I might travel the ocean and have a new adventure. Yeah, and we'll talk about that some more in just a moment. Uh, But part of the success of this really does have to be attributed to Colbert's recruitment efforts and his close work with Talon to select the right assortment of ladies for the Canadian colony. So when Tracy mentioned earlier that this was sort of like really efficient matchmaking uh, combined with sort of like a, a livestock situation, it really was. They were quite good at picking exactly the right numbers and the right matches for these men in the colonies. Uh, And many of these women had come from situations that were extremely difficult for them, either due to deaths in the family that sort of left them without anyone uh, 
there in New France or just general misfortune. So there was usually some degree of motivation to truly make an effort to make this new life work. And for some women, it was a rare opportunity at freedom. They, you know, either maybe had gotten into some trouble while they were in France. Usually it wasn't terrible trouble if they were allowed to be one of the king's daughters. Uh, But basically, you know, at this point, the colonies were still sort of considered this sort of backwoods, scary thing. But when you're facing, you know, definite destitution where you live versus, as Tracy said, like a new adventure and a potential to actually have a life with some social mobility, they were willing to take the risk. So especially compared to life in like a charity hospital or another institution, this looked like a way more appealing option. The setup also gave women way more choice uh, when it came to picking a spouse than they probably would have had at home in France. In the case of women who were from more affluent families, their parents probably would have been the ones making the decision for them. And in the case of women who were from more impoverished circumstances, it opened up the possibility of a marriage and a related increase in social standing. And that's an opportunity that they would not have had if they had stayed in Europe. And there are some written accounts that describe this whole thing as like a meat market scenario where the male settlers would just come in and sort of assess and select brides like livestock. Uh, But there are a lot of other accounts that really contradict that and they make it sound much more civilized. So in these versions, men that were considering taking a wife would visit the king's daughters under supervised conditions. So remember, most of these ladies stayed at a convent when they arrived in North America, or they were placed with families of church members. Like They weren't sort of just pushed into a room and then ogled by men. They had basically gentlemen callers that would come and meet them. And the ladies could interact with these potential suitors if they wished. They didn't have to interact with them, and they had the right to refuse marriage proposals if they were not interested in the man who was interested in them. So they were not being paraded up onto a stage to be selected from, like in our Orphan Trains episode. Right. There was also a lot more personal freedom than a lot of women were entitled to anywhere else in the world in the late 1600s. But once a woman actually did get married, her husband was considered to be her master and the final word in the household. Yeah, even though getting them to the married state was really a much more, uh, you know, empowered state for them to be in in terms of their choice, once they got married, it was pretty old school and the husband ran the house and they kind of had to bend to his will. Although it does seem like most of these matches were pretty good. Uh, most Many of them lasted decades, lots of kids. Uh, just 10 years after France began systematically shipping these brides to be to New France, the population in the French settlement had tripled by virtue of both immigration and procreation. So in addition to the Fidjuwa sort of going over, and that's less than a thousand, but then they started having children very quickly. And this also just helped make the colony look like a more appealing place for other people to go to. So it kind of helped in a PR way as well. And of all of these marriages that happened, so we mentioned there was only like a 4% uh, unsuccessful match rate. Only 4% of the women didn't get married. Only 3% of all of those successful marriages didn't result in children. And sometimes those were like usually medical issues or Uh, Some other problem that came up, one of the spouses would die, etc. Within 20 years of the first births to come from these marriages, the population split between women and men was close to equal. So those are some pretty significant strides. I mean, I think in terms of data set, if you looked at it from when uh, King Louis XIV 
concocted this plan with his advisors. And, you know, just 20 years later, they had really kind of achieved most of what they set out to do. However, in 1673, after a decade of doing this, as France became embroiled in conflict with Holland, uh, the King's Daughters program was actually deemed too costly to maintain. Because remember, they're still paying for these women to to travel, to have their trousseau set up. They're, you know, at that point paying the men incentives to have children. That got very expensive. Uh, They couldn't do that while they were also paying for their military efforts. It's also worth noting that France was not the only country using efforts like this to bolster the population of a colony, although most other countries' programs were a lot more modest. Today, it's said that almost any French-Canadian is related to at least one of the king's daughters. And many people that get into genealogy are able to connect their family lines to multiple king's daughters, uh, where they can sort of find many of them, several of them on the branches of their family tree. And if you can trace your genes to a fille du roi, you can actually be certified as a descendant of the king's daughters so that you will have your own sort of magical connection to this piece of French history. Uh, and there are places still doing the certification online. There was one big one that was uh, happening, a push in 2013 as part of a, an anniversary celebration of this whole event. But I think they are still doing the certifications. Uh, but that is the story of the fille du roi, the import of brides to North America and New France in an effort to sort of make a population. And it was super successful. As much as part of me has a hard time accepting that, it was very successful. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm actually, in in the context of this story, the thing that's the bigger sticking point for me is the greater context of what was happening in the Americas with colonialization rather yeah. than this select group of women, because especially in the context of the times, it does seem like they had a lot more agency and choice yeah. than uh, in France. Yeah, it's one of those weird things where part of it is that admittedly, uh, this is through my lens of kind of like the romantic of like, no, you find your true love, which is silly, uh, that it's hard to think like, oh, so these you know, government guys went out and they found women and thought like, oh, this is, these numbers are going to match up pretty well. And it worked. I'm like, where is the true love in that? But I, that's ridiculous and not to be applied. Well, you can think about it as that uh, with that disparity in the people who were seeking partners, it was a lot more likely that ladies would find somebody they were genuinely attracted to because they had a much bigger pool that's true. to choose from with less competition. That's true. And as I said, many of these marriages lasted decades and were, you know, very seemingly on paper, at least successful. Uh, You know, they had many children, they supported their farms or their fur trade. And they, like I said, they laid the genetic groundwork really for French Canada. So uh, success. Fille du roi. Thank you so much for joining us on this Saturday. If you have heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of today's episode, since it is from the archive, that might be out of date now. You can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com and you can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. 
Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way Is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class.